for our sermon text in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. Of course, the exodus from slavery in Egypt took place uh, and the slaying of the Passover lamb in Egypt back in chapter 12. So God's people are already, when we are at Exodus 18, they are already well on their way out of Egypt toward the promised land. They have not yet reached Mount Sinai. And they were a a vast host that the Lord led out of slavery in Egypt. Some of Moses' kindred were among them. Exodus 18. This is the word of God, so let's give it our reverent attention. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The other was named Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was camped at the Mount of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel, to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute, it, it comes to me. 
and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God and you bring the disputes to God then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the ways in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times. The difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way into his own land. Now we turn to our sermon text in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. By this point, the people have made it through the wilderness after 40 years. They are now gathered together on the eastern bank of the Jordan, on the plains of Moab. Actually, there's a great host of them, so they're not all in one place. They're spread out, a couple of million people, ready to go in and take the land, the good land flowing with milk and honey. And Moses is recounting to them something of their history. He says to them, I spoke to you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he promised you. How can I alone bear the load and burden of you and your strife? Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. 
You answered me and said, The thing which you have said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and of hundreds, of fifties and of tens, and officers for your tribes. Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of your work through history and the reminder that it is to us that you are still at work, for you are the one true God, the changeless God, all wise all love, all power. We ask now that you would send your spirit that we might understand and be able to apply better to our own lives and situation what we read here today. We humbly ask these things in Jesus, our Redeemer's name. Amen. So when the children of Israel at God's direction, finally do pull up stakes at Mount Sinai. They'd been there for a couple of years. And they resume their march toward the promised land. They are equipped, once they start moving again, they're equipped spiritually and organizationally in a way that they hadn't been when they'd first arrived there at Mount Sinai. Because, of course, there at Mount Sinai, Jehovah, the God who is, Jehovah renewed with them his ancient covenant and issued his covenant law there at Sinai, receiving the law, receiving it properly, receiving it with all due fear and reverence is an absolutely essential milestone along any people's way out of slavery and into the life and liberty of a truly free people. And the things God undertakes for his own glory, like our redemption from the enslaving gods of Egypt, these things don't languish unfinished forever. The things that God starts, he brings to a conclusion. At the right time, God finishes this good work that he starts. He brings it right along. When he takes it in hand to redeem us, there is progress. There is forward movement. We should expect that. Now, several significant things had happened there at the foot of Mount Sinai. At Sinai, the living and true God, who had just sprung these people out of slavery in Egypt, he had actually met with them. Face to face, he met with them. He married them, as it were, at Mount Sinai. 
He made them his own covenant people under law. And Moses' unique role as mediator of that old covenant is underscored when hearing the voice at Sinai and seeing the mountain quake under the fire and the smoke and the glory of God's presence, the people beg Moses to speak with them as a man to men and let not God speak to us lest we die. So in all the ranks of the couple of million people, the couple million Israelites who are now moving on into the land of promise, Moses isn't just another man among men. Moses, when he became the mediator of that covenant, the old covenant, Moses became a category unto himself. A category of one. Moses is the one, the only mediator of the old covenant. The only one standing between God and men. Now I want you to think for a moment what that must mean for everyone involved. Have you ever known anyone who's a unique category unto himself or herself? I can't think of anyone like Moses to come along for another 15 centuries. Not until another man and mediator, a better one who was mediating a better covenant than Moses. Not until this man asked a few friends to watch and pray with him and discovered that they weren't even up to that. It's lonely. At the top of the organizational chart in the corporation or the academic department or the school or the state or the nation. If it is lonely at the top of such institutions, imagine the loneliness at the top of the organizational chart of humanity. The burden carried by the divinely appointed mediator between God and man is something that not even Aaron and Miriam, who watched Moses grow up, could fully share with him. There was a time they wanted to share that mediatorial role with Moses, wasn't there? A time they even dared to. You can read about that in the book of Numbers, chapter 12. And it didn't turn out well for them. Because the loneliness, the uniqueness of the mediatorial office between God and men, the uniqueness and loneliness of that is by design. No one can share it. There's one God and one mediator also between God and man. For 1,500 years in the unfolding history of humanity's redemption, Moses was that man. 
For those 1,500 years, if we come to God at all, it will be, in a sense, through Moses. And not, of course, through Moses as a man. Moses is a sinner too, and in that respect at least, he is no different than you and me. But as an organ of divine revelation, and in terms of the office that he held, Moses is the mediator, uniquely appointed by God himself. If what the author of Hebrews much later said of the high priesthood is true, how much more the absolutely unique office of covenant mediator. No one takes this honor unto himself. Now, the picture that the Bible gives us of Moses is that of a man who takes his duties very seriously. And this degree of seriousness with respect to duty puts mere flesh and blood in a terrible bind, doesn't it? This mere man, who, remember, was over 80 years old at Mount Sinai, 80 years old, he has an entire nation to care for and only so many hours a day in which to do it. Being conscientious about the keeping of the commandments himself, we'd have to say that Moses must have been at it 24-6. Whatever it may be with respect to the relationship between the living God and his people, his chosen nation, Moses' thinking was, if it is to be, it's up to me. Ladies, can you imagine being married to this man? Well, one woman at least, his wife Zipporah, didn't have to imagine it. She lived it. Did this man ever make it home in time for dinner? Was he ever available to put their two little boys to bed at night? Was there ever one single thing that was scratched off his honeydew list at the end of a day? Moses' duties, faithfully discharged, put an incredible strain on his marriage. He actually has to send her back home to daddy, Jethro, for a while at least, along with her two sons. We know it happened once. It might well have happened more than once over the course of 40 years. Whatever the particulars, and the Bible is actually respectfully silent on whatever those particulars may have been, Moses and his loved ones apparently just can't give one another the mutual support that families need and expect and deserve. I'm trying to frame the situation for us because whenever we read the Bible, we're sometimes tempted to read it as if it's just the compilation of the stories of ancient heroes. Men and women who are much larger than life, much larger than we are, men and women who didn't have the problems and the distractions of life that we have today. But they most certainly did. They did. 
As mediator of the Old Covenant, Moses literally had no peers. He had no peers simply because God hadn't appointed anyone else to stand in the gap between himself and the lost humanity that God is in the process of redeeming. Apart from Moses, it's just not going to happen. So you can cancel all your vacation plans, Moses, for the next 40 years. Cancel it all for the rest of your life. I want you to imagine that. And you can realize that without help and very soon, Moses the man is going to crack. He's going to crack. And as we read in Exodus 18, it's his father-in-law Jethro who first points this out to him. I wonder, have you ever had your head so far down into your work your shoulders so pressed to the wheel, your nose so hard to the grindstone that you couldn't see that it was destroying you. I've known people like that. That that lifestyle, that single-minded dedication to duty was destroying your relationships. What a blessing it is under conditions like that to have someone who cares for you take you aside and say, Hey, Moses, son, what's this you're doing for all the people? Why do you alone have to decide every single case that comes up between one Israelite and another? between neighbors in a nation of a couple million people. All you do from the time you get up into the morning until the time you go to bed at night is to listen to people quarrel. This isn't good for my daughter. It's not good for my grandchildren. It's not good for you. Listen to me. These aren't the duties a specialist like you, a covenant mediator, ought to be doing. They're the duties of ordinary human courts. Now here on the plains of Moab, Moses is reflecting back on the appointment of those courts at Sinai some years earlier, nearly a generation earlier. And there are lessons about the appointment of courts and the men who make them up that are worth remembering as the nation now faces its next great challenge of conquest. Many of these lessons have to do with the burden of leadership. The burden of leadership. And the first of these lessons about the burden of leadership may be a little surprising It's that godly leaders bear their burden in joyful anticipation of still greater burdens ahead. Godly leaders bear their burden in joyful anticipation of still greater burdens ahead. 
It's a burden borne joyfully. And the object of leadership is to meet the growing need, not to stop it. Because however long the hours may become for the elder, however perplexing the problems, leadership of God's covenant people is a blessing. It is a privilege. It's an honor. Look again at the wonderful progression of verses 9 to 11. Moses recounts the time back there at Mount Sinai when he was absolutely at his wit's end. I spoke to you at that time saying, I am not able to bear the burden of you alone. Now, even though he doesn't say so here, we who read the Bible remember that it was actually Jethro who had to remind him that he can't do it all alone. Men need to be told these things, don't we? Because we're we're inclined to think otherwise. We're pridefully inclined to think otherwise. I can handle this. Moses needs to be told, no, you can't. And Jethro is the man to to do it. Jethro is older, and if not wiser, at least he's more objective as he sees what the situation's doing to Moses and his family. And Jethro has a stake in this because this is his daughter's husband. This is his grandchildren's daddy who is being crushed day after day under the weight of his responsibility. It's family that brought him around to see the danger. Wise counsel and objectivity You owe it to your family. And your family owes it to you. But then Moses moves on from his own frailties to the much bigger picture, framing his present distress in terms of God's promises to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. The Lord your God has multiplied you, he says to the nation gathered there. The Lord your God has multiplied you. And behold, you are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. The Lord's been absolutely faithful to his word. There were precisely 70 children of Abraham who went down into Egypt 400 years earlier. 70. Millions of them came out. But Moses doesn't end his reflections there as if it were only today's leadership problems and opportunities and somehow being able to meet them that matter. When we are feeling overwhelmed, I'll speak for myself, when I am feeling overwhelmed, I'm just happy if I can come up with a plan that meets the need of the moment just stops the bleeding and gives me a little bit of breathing room. But look how Moses joyously welcomes more covenant blessing and consequently more needs and more pressures for leaders to bear in the days and years ahead. This is remarkable that Moses should say at this point, may the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you 
a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he promised you. Isn't that wonderful? That a leader under such pressures can think this way and can talk this way. There's no grumbling here. There's no tossing up his hands. There's no bailing out simply because the job's too big for him. The Bible's answer to the perceived problem of many people isn't the current political answer of the Chinese government who legislate limitations to the size of families. It's not the answer of convenience-seeking Americans who for nearly 50 years aborted their anticipated problems by the tens of millions. Moses has an absolutely reverse view of this. As mediator, he knows not only the pressures of his own office, he knows the sweet character of God, as most of humanity didn't at the time, and still doesn't today. Leadership problems aren't just problems. Leadership problems always have a God-given people behind them, or in some way affected by them. And the people given to us are a blessing to lead. Let us joyfully welcome a thousandfold more than we have today. Bring on all the necessary adjustments, all the necessary accommodations we're going to have to make. God will provide. May the Lord bless you a thousandfold more than he has so far. A second lesson is that leaders bear the burden jointly as qualified representatives. We bear the burden joyously and we bear it jointly. This leadership needs to have both aspects to it. Moses can't expect to solve everyone's problems single-handedly. The problems in view, of course, the ones taking that every spare moment of Moses' time, they're problems that have already reached a certain boiling point in their development, problems that have crossed a level of difficulty. These aren't the easy ones that are easily and quietly and permanently settled with a simple discussion. These are problems that require mediation, maybe even arbitration. Now, a word about this. The goal of conflict resolution is always to solve problems at the lowest possible level. This is so helpful when people, when when it sinks in. The goal of conflict resolution is to solve problems at the lowest possible level. It's just what Jesus taught as well, isn't it, in the 18th chapter of Matthew. Involve as few people with as little drama as you possibly can when you solve problems. If you can overlook an offense altogether, 
if you can forgive someone quietly without anyone ever hearing about it, that's best of all. But failing that at the next level up, simple misunderstandings are best resolved quietly between the parties involved. Sometimes failing that, a few others have to be taken along as witnesses, even as mediators between the parties. Hard cases might call for arbitration. That is a settlement. This is what you need to do. Some cases have to be heard and evidence presented and judgment rendered. Sometimes people have to be told the right thing to do under the particular circumstances, told by somebody with the authority to do the telling. So what are the qualifications of these men who do the telling of what you need to do under the circumstances? It's important that we get these down, these qualifications down pat, before we cross over the river into the promised land, because Moses isn't going with us. We're going to cross the river, and Moses is staying here. Moses is dying here, he's going to be buried here, and we're going across the river, and we need to know who's going to lead us. What are their qualifications? So when those intractable problems across the river come, who's going to arbitrate for the people of God? Who's going to decide our cases? They are courts of men with joint responsibility. The first time I ever preached on this passage some years ago, I entitled the sermon, The Foundations of Presbyterianism. And it is that. This is where Presbyterianism started. So what must these men be? What characteristics must they possess? Three things in particular. And actually a fourth that we'll get to later. They must first be wise, which to the Hebrew meant not merely knowledgeable, but to the Hebrew, wise means skilled at what they do. They must be skilled at what they do. Secondly, they must be discerning. Able to render a true judgment given the evidence. Wise, discerning. And thirdly, according to the Hebrew word used, they must be well-known. Well-known. That is to say, trusted among their own people. The word you hear a lot of today, and I've never actually found it in a dictionary. I hear it all the time. I look it up and I can't find it in a dictionary. Vetted. They must be vetted. No shadowy characters ever need apply for the courts of the Lord's house. No unknown quantities. A judicial system unravels when it's imposed on any people from the outside 
or when it's in the hands of people who aren't well-known and well-trusted. It unravels because its authority rests merely on a piece of paper and not on a long-established relationship of human trust. Choose wise and discerning and experienced men or well-known men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. So God's people have a say in choosing their own officers to share the burden of leadership on her representative courts. They bear the burden joyously and jointly. And thirdly, the burden of leadership is primarily judicial in function. It's judicial. God's people don't need a board of directors. We don't need a conference room full of CEO wannabes running the church. We don't need more legislators. And the reason we don't want them or need them is simple. We have one king, one lawgiver. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. So in the final analysis, we need no other chief executive, we need no other legislator, we need no pastors, elders, or anyone else in a leadership position looking to throw his weight around. Leaders who show a disposition to assert themselves, who want essentially to be kings, who want to make their own rules, these people aren't only unpleasant in the church, they are dangerous to the church. Self-appointed leaders, self-centered leaders, take us down a path that we see this new nation actually take after the death first of Moses and then later of Joshua. Godless leaders with inflated views of themselves and their opinions take us down the road of lawlessness. Everyone doing whatever seems right in his own eyes. Without the law... And without godly, trusted men jointly to interpret and apply God's law in their administration of justice, the nation leaving slavery behind in Egypt is doomed only to face another kind of slavery across the river. Slavery to its own lawless appetites, its own willfulness, its own lawless gratification and convenience, and unless grace intervenes, ultimately they're going to face national suicide. What the people of God need, and how much more now with Moses, the divinely appointed mediator, soon to leave us, what we need as the people of Israel gathered, poised to go across into the promised land, what we need are joyful men jointly meeting to render justice in accordance with a fair and reasonable interpretation of God's law.
That's what we need. Beloved, the calling of leadership is as high as the stakes are high. A nation that's about to plunge itself into the dangerous ambiguities of war and conquest across the river on top of the routine daily business of the courts, that nation needs to take stock of its leaders. And those leaders do well to take stock of the resources offered by him who appoints them to the task. God himself who equips them with the needed wisdom and discernment and established trust now charges them through Moses to demonstrate courage. There's the fourth credential that I mentioned earlier. Courage. Fear men neither in the hot arena of battle nor the cooler one of justice. Because in the final analysis, the judgment that you render as a leader isn't your judgment at all. It is the judgment of God who by your decisions rendered as leaders, as shepherds of the flock, demonstrates the tender love God has for his church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you have thought out and decreed from long ago all of these points of governance and justice that we sinners would never have even considered or thought worthy of our time and attention. Thank you that through the ages you've taught your people to choose for ourselves wise, discerning, trusted, courageous men to lead us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to show us such grace and to teach us to be careful in selecting our leaders. We are especially mindful of this as we are in the throes of a search for our own pastor. We ask that you would prepare him, whoever he may be, that he would be the man first of your choosing and then of ours. Grant these things, we pray, for your glory and the good of your beloved bride, the church. We humbly ask in Jesus, our Redeemer's name. Amen.